Welcome everyone to the Crim Academy, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jose. And today we're speaking to Life Course Criminology and biopsychosocial scholar, Professor Kelly Burt. Kelly is an associate professor of criminology and criminal justice at Georgia State University in the Center for Research on Interpersonal Violence. Kelly received her PhD in sociology from the University of Georgia. Her primary research interest is in developmental and life course sociology and criminology. Kelly's research focuses on explaining the psychosocial mechanisms through which social inequalities influence social behaviors with an emphasis on understanding racial disparities. Currently, with support of a mentored research scientist development K01 award from NICHD, Kelly is also studying genomics in order to incorporate gene-environment interplay into her research. In 2014, Kelly was awarded the Kevin Young Scholar Award from the American Society of Criminology. Thank you for joining us, Kelly. Yes, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. So just kind of a brief overview of what we're going to cover today. We're going to open up with kind of some general questions, primarily about social schematic theory. And then we're going to transfer or switch into a chapter that Callie authored on racial discrimination and cultural adaptations. And then lastly, we're going to talk about some publication or data questions on doing better science and kind of some transparency questions. So Jose, you want to get us started? Sure. So, you know, we're going to start pretty broad here. And so, Kelly, what was the motivation behind the development of social schematic theory? And what exactly is social schematic theory? Excellent question. Well, speaking first to the motivation, it was really a perfect combination of personal dissatisfaction with available theories in my view of understanding crime, as well as my mentor, Ron Simmons, who is brilliant to work with and taught me to read expansively, you know, far outside of criminology and sociology. And it sort of led to a storm of thinking in a new way of looking at crime for us. So to the first, I was was a general strain theorist. And for those who don't know general strain theory, it's really the idea that we experience strain emotional responses, including especially anger, and those can lead to criminal behavior. And that was really the way I I looked at crime and and understood it. But I can remember, you know, I would just have several days of thinking that I was dissatisfied with the explanation. One particular, I remember sitting on the beach thinking, wait, what is, we all experience strain. So why are only some of us, some of the time committing crime? And then I really came to the realization that for me, the interest wasn't really strain, the key variable wasn't really strain itself, since we do all experience it. And most people in the most highly disadvantaged neighborhoods are not committing crime much of the time. So it really made me think more about, okay, what leads to these outcomes besides strain? Because that seems to be not the key factor leading to different outcomes in crime. And second, you know, it was, we've experienced a really incredible growth in different criminological theories over the past 30 years from Lobb and Sampson's age-graded informal social control theory to general strain theory that I just mentioned, and then Doverson Hershey's low self-control theory. But each of them really only seem to explain a portion of crime, and all of them seem to be important. So we were really 
trying to think of a way that we can incorporate all these different insights into a more holistic explanation. And finally, and Ron deserves most of the credit for this, in the 2000s, we became aware of, I became aware of, due to him, a lot of research on human morality that seemed to say quite clearly that we weren't born good or naturally bad or just as empty vessels that we just absorbed what society you know, tells us to do, but rather that we evolved the ability to adapt our orientations and even what we might call morality to fit our environments. And that, that insight seemed to suggest that we really needed to focus on, on social learning in a different way that the current social learning theory was doing it, which focused a lot on the processes of learning and with a heavy emphasis on you know, deviant peers. But we really wanted to expand that and, and, and focus on what key lessons are learned, you know, how are these incorporated and, and, and shape our actions. And then I guess the final straw was, was when we realized that we did more reading kind of a, a Katz's work and, and others that suggested that most offenders don't view their crimes as being horrific. But instead, they seem to justify them, you know, saying it was warranted or excused, and that their dif- definitions of the situation are drastically different from ours. And so that really pointed us to the need to kind of think about how do people develop these definitions of the situation that can be so different from the rest of us and justify crime. And so that was, that's the long kind of background to what set up the stage for, for the theory. And so the theory itself is, as you stated, it's a life course learning theory. So we're really interested in, in the lessons that are learned you know, across the life course. And some people, you know, Augustus uh, and Hershey's theory really focus on the importance of early years, but recent research, and now it's not even recent anymore, suggests that we really retain the ability to change our personalities well into later life. And, and so we have to really maintain a life course approach to account, to account for the fact that we can continue to change in response to changing circumstances. So the theory really focuses on understanding how our orientations to the world, which shape our definitions, are, are basically calibrated by our environmental circumstances. And we tried to pull in all the key risk factors from major theories, as well as incorporate racial discrimination. So, you know, collective efficacy, social disorder and crime, parental abuse versus support, deviant peers, you know, resource scarcity, danger, all these factors that have really been identified in most criminological theories into our theory, which really focuses on the lessons learned from this as relates to the schemas and then shapes definitions. And so to kind of back out a little bit into some of the complexity, we took an evolutionary developmental approach, which shifted somewhat from the earlier social learning theory and really highlighted the fact that there's certain key lessons that we evolved to learn. And we didn't evolve to learn these lessons to be good at school or to get a good job or to have a lot of money or to be happy, but we really evolved to pick up key cues and persistent lessons in order to survive. And the, the idea for most current theories is, you know, for example, Godverson and Hershey's is that we adapt or we're maladapted or we're dysfunctional. And SST really focuses on drawing on some of these evolutionary theories is that we actually adapt in functional ways to survive. And that may not be good for health or happiness or, or, or even society, but that's not the goal of our existence. We, you know, as, as animals, we didn't evolve to be good members of society, but to survive. And so the lessons that we really keyed in on were 
that you could trust others and, the, and whether or not the world is like hostile and versus kind and, and trustworthy or kind of cynical, whether delayed rewards materialize or not. So whether you can, you know, save your money and expect to have a good future, whether if you loan someone something, they're going to give it back, where if you trust someone to be nice, they will. And then how these are internalized into, into three schemas. And these are, you know, immediate gratification, which corresponds very closely to kind of low self-control, at least it's commonly understood. Hostile views of relationships, which can vary. You can, people can have a very beneficial view of relationships where you're almost, I might include my wife there, which you're almost overly trustworthy, you know, of others that they're going to be kind and loving versus people who expect for, because they've learned that, that others hurt them. And, and, and the most wide, widely used example is the idea of hostile views of relationships with kids that you have an experiment where you have a confederate or someone that's in the experiment and they bump the kid when they're going down the hallway. And some kids respond by, so the, the confederate purposely bumps the other person. And some people assume that the others, you know, obviously an accident or maybe their fault and they even apologize like, oh, I'm so sorry for bumping you. Whereas kids that have grown up in a really harsh environment can assume that the other meant it or at least that it deserves a strong response. And they can even respond aggressively to the other person, assuming they meant to hurt them. And so that's sort of the hostile views of relationships. And the other one is disengagement from conventional norms. And this can be broadly understood both in terms of like believing that not just that laws should be followed, but other norms like, for example, you should keep your word or that you shouldn't cheat on your partner or that, you know, like don't use drugs which that's sort of not really is, is relevant anymore in our society, given how we're shifting and our view of drugs is no longer reefer madness. And these really are shaped by your environment. And then they come together in our argument and our theory to shape how you view situations. So that when you're in a situation where you're in a bar and someone bumps you, you either you know, define that situation as them provocating you and then deserves a strong response, or you don't care or say, oops. Or you're in another situation where someone leaves their wallet out and you're like, you know, whoa, I could totally grab that. And no one would know. I could just take some money and take off versus you see that as an opportunity to do a good deed. And that these different definitions do not result from people being born bad, but that they really result from what they've learned from their environments. So some people that would you know, not see that as a good deed know that if they don't take that money, someone else will, and they're just losing out on an opportunity. So it very much locates the source of criminality or the propensity to engage in crime in our social environments. So that's my long-winded discussion of the theory. And is there yeah. anything that, I mean, you know, I just dumped out a lot. Is there anything that I should expound on or that I might have, have left out? I think later on, we're going to ask you to tell us a little bit more about what exactly a schema is. Oh, great. I think one of the questions that Jose and I had while we were reading your chapter and talking about SST was whether or not SST was intentionally developed as like a racialized theory, or if that was kind of a component that you brought into it later. Great question. So I think it was, we developed it the way I view racialized. So mm -hmm. I view a racialized theory as one that takes account of, you know, our racist system and racial disparities and structural racism versus, you know, a race specific theory, which thinks that we need to have different explanations for different race, racial groups crime versus those that just 
ignore race. And so this one, I, I think, I mean, we definitely from the outset focused on racial discrimination as something that was unique to racial minorities and very relevant to understanding crime, in part because of observed racial disparities. But we didn't, I don't think we couched it in the language. We didn't couch it in the language of a racialized theory. I think that sort of understanding of it developed later. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Jose, did you have any other questions about SSC? Well, Kelly, you kind of answered one of the questions that I was going to ask, which sort of was sort of getting at that difference that you just talked about between race-specific and racialized. But And then as a follow-up to that, why do you think that race doesn't come into theory more? I know that's something that you highlight in your book chapter, that race either is not present at all or it becomes the central focus of the theory but there's so very like there's very few race specific theories that's a really great question and i think that the kind of famous statement of samson and wilson or was it wilson and samson i think it was samson and wilson in 87 about that we were mired in a an un, unproductive mix of of controversy and silence after the years of these the the victim blaming cultural explanations and so i think it seems clear to me that for a time people purposely avoided it to avoid, I mean, so they, they weren't blaming the victim and they did, I don't think we really had a good framework for incorporating racial discrimination and disparities and inequalities that accounted for differences at the individual level. I still think, you know, we have the macro level explanations, but a way of thinking about how that affects individual differences, we really didn't have the theoretical framework for that. So I think that's one reason why people avoided it. And then otherwise, I really think that it is, it's a really great, fascinating question. I think there's both avoidance and then kind of a super focus, but sort of a recognizing that, that this is one important thing that should be discussed. Like, you know, Hershey completely ignored it in his, basically most of his theories. And, you know, Agnes General Strain Theory, you know, has some unique, you know, talks about the you know, racial discrimination as a strain, which is very much very similar to how we think about it, except we're thinking about the lessons. But it is an interesting, I think it was really just an outcome of the the kind of controversy and cultural blaming explanations that people didn't know how to grapple with because we were busy doing other things. Yeah. What what do you guys is that what you thought you think? Well, I was, I was recently reading, so for a paper that Jen and I are working on, I'm looking at race. And so I've been doing some reading into it. And I was reading the Samson Lauritsen paper, I believe it's in 97. And basically they say people will tend to avoid race or scholars will tend to avoid it because they don't want to be called racist. And so there's like this inherent fear that if they don't handle this, the topic like they think they should or the way that they perceive that others think they should, that they'll just face backlash and that that's not what they want, right? You don't, like no one wants to be called a racist. And, you know, we've had this discussion with other people, like, do we need race-specific theories? I think I generally fall in the camp of not really, but I do like the approach that you're taking to it where yeah, I like that distinction of racialized versus race-specific. And I think racialized is probably the better way to do it, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think in part, I mean, because racial complexities, I mean, you know, we have multiple races and ethnicities and, and, and it's a continuum too. I mean, there people have are mixed race. And I think that there's also a danger of implying that, that certain races have unique motives for crime or, you, you know, that are different in kind mm-hmm. from other offenders. Lynn Covington warned in, in the mid nineties, you know, this idea of, of a, a black offender with uniquely, you know, with a unique psyche produced by past and present racism, you know, can almost create a more, this pathological view of black offenders, which doesn't exist. And so I think, you know, I think that we can have pathways models where you're looking at, you know, race specific pathways, but, you know, in terms of really understanding why people offend, I really think it's very often, you know, we we think some of the same, or we might think different things because of different experiences, but in the end, some of the definitions seem to, you know, whether you're doing it because you were, you know, just mistreated by your parents or society in the end, that situational definition is that this act is justified and I'm going to do it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And mm-hmm. so would you say that if a theory doesn't take race into consideration, then it's incomplete or doing itself a disservice? Yes, I would say yes. In the same way, I would have to say a theory that doesn't take, you know, sex or gender into account also is incomplete because these are, you know, basic facts that a theory needs to be able to, to account for. So I, I do think that, I mean, I, you know, and it's, it's more complex, especially with regard to race, because, you know, race is related to, you know, the criminalization of blackness. And, you know, we look at, at, at the disparate treatment of, you know, drug use that are, you know, crack versus cocaine. And, and so there's a lot, to, there's so much underneath it, but I think a theory has to try to grapple with it. And even just making an effort to say, here's some things we can do, but there's so much we don't know. And then most all the theories, including ours at present, ignore white collar crimes and, you know, the elite crimes, which, who knows what the racial distribution of crimes would look like if we actually counted white collar crimes in our measures. So, but given our focus on street crime, I do think it is something we have to account for, even if it really is to say, you know, some Dalton Conley, you know, reduces race very much at this point to class differences, which I think what we're seeing now is that maybe that, that it could be quite the oversimplification, but even that is an effort to deal with it. And by deal, I don't, you know, I mean, explain it, understand it, contribute to our understanding of it. Right. All right. And you had the question about schemas, but just, should I address that question really fast? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I should have explained what a schema is. So, you know, we, we engage in the world with so much stimuli around us and we, our time is limited. Our cognition is extremely limited. And so schemas simplify the processing of information and are basically heuristics or shortcuts, which basically draw our attention to certain things, direct our encoding of certain things, and then think, you know, direct what we think are our alternative, you know, actions. So, you know, when we go out and about in the world, we do not encode everything we see. So, but we learn to encode certain things based on our culture and our past experiences. So when we're driving a car, we learn to pay attention to other cars, signs, stoplights, right, that, that direct our behaviors, because otherwise it might be impossible to try to drive around and, and also pay attention to everything else that's happening. And so the same is true, you know, in all our behaviors. And we can think about, you know, again, back to the person in the bar that gets bumped, 
you know, some of us are walking around the world because we've had really supportive experiences thinking most people are going to be nice to us and we aren't looking for provocations. We're not looking for slights. We're actually often not even looking for threats to our well-being. Someone who grows up in a dangerous neighborhood doesn't have the luxury of that kind of worldview. They, they have to be ready to engage in a quick defense. They have to be cued to maybe things that the other person is going to, might be carrying a weapon or might pose a danger to them or even threats to their status, which, which keeps them safe. So they can encode different things, which leads to different outcomes. So then that push is encoded differently and leads to different outcomes depending on your different schemas and what you're paying attention to. So we'll talk, we, Jose has more questions for you about okay. schemas when we talk about the chapter. So okay, great. we'll dive back into that. But kind of switching topics a little, as we know that you're starting to bring in some gene environment interactions looking at genomics. And so we're curious what your goal behind incorporating these gene environment interactions into your research is. And then how do gene environment interactions mesh with social schematic theory? So to the first, I mean, I, I think that what is my goal of incorporating it? So initially, I mean, I was very, Ron Simmons, my mentor, got into gene environment interactions and I was very skeptical in part because I didn't really, you know, I thought most of what is interest to criminologists is going to be is social. I firmly believe that except in, in rare cases that aren't worth even talking about that that people aren't born criminals and it doesn't even necessarily make sense given what we know to think of people as being born more likely to commit crime than others but at the same time i didn't have the expertise to evaluate and engage as, as deeply as i wanted to with the this work that was being done my last biology course was in 1990 seven. And, and, we, and what has changed is, is out of control, you know, so like my mind is blown by what we know now. And so in part, I wanted to get into it as a person who, you know, I'm not, not suggesting that people who look at genetics or biology are inherently genetic determinists, but I wanted to get into someone who was very explicitly a skeptic who could engage and understand this and think about how it's useful or not. And I'm less interested in genes but I think that's relevant and more interested in, in kind of genomics more broadly, which concerns gene expression and gene regulation and, and how it make you know, and how we might use kind of epigenetics, which is extraordinarily complex, even more so than I realized to kind of understand how we adapt to environments in, in ways that are, are lasting and enduring and potentially at some point, you know, measurable or not, or at least just helping us understand, you know, what's going on because, when we learn, you know, that's a change in, in gene expression and it is a change in connections. And, and so everything is essentially undergirded by biological processes, but I really had no understanding of it. And so I, I think it was driven in large part by my desire to engage with it and understand with it and think, understand with it, understand it and think about how it might be useful and if it is. And I'm still not convinced whether it is, but I'm also not convinced it isn't. So, and I think to how it relates to social schematic theory, at this point, I don't think well. My engagement in genomics is very much not about crime. It's more about health. And some of that relates to criminal behaviors, certainly, when we can think about, you know, think, you know things that might blunt your fear response or make you more responsive to the reward, but that is only very distantly related to criminal behavior. 
So I, it, it's much more in understanding how harsh environments shape our development more than how that then leads to potential behaviors, because I think that becomes such a stretch. I've actually, I don't think crime itself is, is a proper outcome for biological analysis. Can you explain what gene expressions are? Because I'm not, oh, I'm, I oh, know yes. like nothing about this stuff. So. <laughs> yes, that, and that was, that was my, that was me not so long ago. And then when I really jumped into it, I could get a surface understanding, but I knew there was so much I did not know. And now I'm just aware of how much I still do not. The more I learn, the more I recognize I do not know. So gene expression, you know, our, we have, you know, just to get an idea of our expansive, our cells. So we have about 25 trillion cells. And each cell we have about, it's a diploid cell with a 3 billion base pair genome. And if you stretched it out, each cell it would be about two meters long. And that's each cell. You've got, you know, 20, 25 trillion cells. So we've got tons of information in our bodies. And it's very tightly coiled, and it has to be because it wouldn't fit. And each cell has the same genome, but it does different things, right? So, you know, our skin cells and heart cells have the same genes, but they're obviously developing in very different ways. And that different development and activity is due to the different genes that are expressed. And expressed is a weird word, but what it really means is that they're transcribed, you know, so DNA makes RNA, makes protein, but DNA actually doesn't make RNA. The cell, you know, uses use a variety of, of enzymes to actually, you know, write the RNA from, from the DNA and then make various proteins which do various things in the cell. And so the expression itself is basically the accessibility of the DNA to from you know from these RNA polymerase enzymes that then transcribe it. And I'm not sure that helps, but, but the easiest way to think of it to me is because to fit this two meter long genome in this exceptionally small cell, it yeah. is coiled up so tightly that it can't be reached by the, the enzymes that turn it on. And so the default state is that it's turned off. You can't reach it. You can't, it's like a switch that's not reachable. But when it's expressed, it kind of loosens up and then it can be reached by the enzymes that then transcribe it and make things. And so the idea is that when we, you know, whether you're, you know, engaged in bodybuilding or other things, you're using some of these same enzymes or, you know, the proteins and transcripts over and over. And so these, these things stay looser. And so mm -hmm. it's more easily reachable. And that's in part how your body can do things more efficiently over time. And that's really in one way that learning occurs, right? So, so thinking about how that, whether we're someone who's constantly on, you know, on guard from threat from others, we're going to have a heightened fear response, which is itself, you know, your body more quickly releases cortisol and goes into fight or flight, which is, you know, based on gene expression. And so on one hand, it sounds, okay, great. Well, that sounds simple. But then the more I get into it, the more I see how it's extraordinarily, you know, we don't know what a lot of things, you know, what a lot of genes do, but we also, one of the things that I really wanted to do was pull the fact that people tend to either look at what genes do you have, or they look at, or what varieties of genes do you have, or look at kind of what kind of gene expression patterns do we see. But you have to look at them both together because your genes can determine your expression power, you know, expression patterns and what genes you're expressing. You know, if it's a faulty gene or a gene that doesn't work as well or a protein that doesn't work as well, then that matters too. So 
And I, you know, the more I get into the more I realize the importance of team science, which in part relates to the transparency kind of goal that I have, you know, to, to work with. But this was how this works with social science to me is something that we're not, I don't think we really have a good idea yet. And I think a lot of really great people are doing work on this, but it, it's, they're both overhyped promises and uncertainty. And I think there's, I guess I want to be able to, I know, I know I want to be able to kind of digest it myself and, and figure out what it says and help kind of with a critical eye kind of shape what, how genes are being used and what we can really understand and know and, and what maybe not such a good idea. Yeah, I think that's really cool that you're critical of it, but you want to learn more about it instead of just critiquing it, like I feel like some other people have done. And so you're diving in with an open mind, a critical but open mind. Yeah, and I think I, I think that to critique something properly, you have to, and we, we hopefully we can all agree, to critique something properly, you have to understand it. And yeah. when I went back and realized how much we learned since I was last in biology, I was like, wow like this is this is this is incredible like I mean the joke that my dad often says is how do it know and it's like that's how I like how do it know like how do we know all this and it's it's really phenomenal but I mean some interesting things like you know just things I had no idea that for example you know we the weird things that we do in society for example you know we have like kids take their father's last name and then you know the idea that we used to have that sons should be the person to carry along the family line but actually sons are more similar to their mothers than their fathers and sons are more similar i mean they have more genetic similarity to their mothers than their fathers and sons have more genetic similarity to their mothers than daughters do because the x chromosome has about a thousand genes on it and the y chromosome is a puny like you know hundred or less. And so it's these, you know, these interesting things that we, we never really knew that uh, they're to me fun to learn about. Well, that yeah. answers a lot of questions for me. <laughs> and, and the constant, so many more. Yeah, the constant uh, comment that my sister used to make while we're growing up, why are you so much like our mom? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and now, now you can say I can't help it. I just, I only have her X chromosome. <laughs> Yeah, that is, yeah, that is fascinating. I took biology, oh Christ, what was it, like eight years ago? And all I remember is that the A and DNA and RNA stands for acid and pundit squares. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I think that's more than a lot of people came out with. Yeah. I was like, that's more than I remember. So. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, just to echo Jen, I think it's really commendable that you are, learning all of this and furthering your education on the bio part because you know i think it's safe to say that we've all read a biopsychosocial article that's more social than anything else and then it kind of becomes clear that the people writing it may not have the best understanding of the bio or the psycho right yes i think that that is that's true and you know as we'll talk about maybe later i mean there's so much to know and so little time that you know we're all doing our best and so i am fortunate to have this this time to be able to learn this because it was i did it wasn't it would have been impossible to try to learn this on my own and so now you know i went back to school taking classes luckily i didn't have to take the tests which was fantastic <laughs> took a lot of the pressure off yeah and so yeah so i mean to answer the question i'm not you know I'm not sure how it works with social schematic theory. And at this point, given what we know and given what I think we're going to find out, pulling in biology to a theory explaining crime needs to be done carefully 
and without trying to directly link it to crime. I think there could be other things that it may be linked to at some point, such as, you know, sensation seeking or certain things like that. I mean, because I think some of us are naturally more sensation seeking, but that too is shaped by our social environments. But I think we need to, the exuberance with which some people, you know, try to take new technologies and apply it to whatever they study could be, is somewhat a risky endeavor. Yep, makes sense. All right. So shall we transition into your chapter? Oh, sounds great. Okay. So the chapter is called Racial Discrimination and Cultural Adaptations, an Evolutionary Developmental Approach. Came out in 2018 in Advances in Criminological Theory, Building a Black Criminology. Just to kind of introduce the chapter just a little bit. You do so much in this chapter. It was like mind-blowing. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> thanks, maybe. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it was really good. Jose and I had a hard time deciding exactly what we wanted to talk about just because there are so many things. Just to kind of list some of the things for listeners who maybe are interested in some of this. The chapter discusses black criminology, race and street crime, interpersonal racial discrimination, social schematic theory of crime, social schemas, cultural frames, and much more. Those are just some of them. (laughs) To hopefully try and sum up what you did and correct me if I'm wrong here. In this chapter, you explore the connections between interpersonal racial discrimination, cultural adaptations, and crime. So to do this, you examine the criminogenic effects of anti-Black racism through the social schematic theory of street crime and extend SST to create a framework that links racial discrimination and race-neutral risk factors to psychosocial orientations. Yes, although when I hear my own description, I'm like, wow, Callie, you could have made that a little more simple. (laughs) (laughs) But that's that's actually really hard to kind of be like, no, write a 90-word abstract. And I'm like, "Mm, 900? And they're like, 90. And I'm like, fine. (laughs) Yes. And just a quick question before we jump into the main questions. Could you give us a quick rundown of what a race-neutral risk factor is? Yes. So a race-neutral, as I use the term, a race-neutral risk factor would be something like, it does imply that it's not differentially distributed by race. It just implies that it's not race-based. So for example, Mm -hmm. parental, you know, child abuse, it would be a race-neutral risk factor or having deviant peers would be a race-neutral risk factor. So we could still explore whether, you know, because of the legacy of historical and continuing racial discrimination and subordination, whether these things might be disproportionately you know, risk factors for African-Americans, but it would still be itself a race-neutral risk factor in that it affects, it could affect, you know, people of any race or ethnicity. Cool. So, and I, and just, to, just to give a frame of this paper, I'm, I'm happy you recognize that I did a lot because, you know, I was, when I was asked to this piece, they were like, Jim Unover invited me to do this piece and said, you can just summarize basically, you know, what the research shows. But, I, you know, I was sort of like, well, I've done that already and I've got things I want to do. And then I got into it and really I had thought a lot about this. I had a diagram of what is culture on my wall and what is social structure. And I was, it, it I struck me as, hey, this is a place I can actually lay. I mean, one of the great things about invited pieces and chapters is that you get a little bit more leeway and sort of presenting more kind of innovative or different ideas. And so I thought I'm going to, you know, try to fill this gap that I saw in kind of leaking, linking structure to culture, but it was within everything else that I was already doing. And it blew up a bit. And luckily, they were very kind and did not mind the, the link. So I got away with greatly exceeding the, the suggested word limit. Keyword suggested. 
yeah, it does a lot and it overlays a lot of information. So it's great for people like me who don't know this information very well. Yeah. So kind of the first question is just, it's broad and it's, if you can explain the main argument or goal of the extended framework you advocate for in this book chapter. So in this piece, the framework itself, it was sort of an opportunity to, so when you write articles in, in journals, some people probably don't struggle with this, but I'm not known for being very concise and I always have a lot to say. And so really elaborating on the evolutionary developmental underpinnings of the theory was never really possible. We tried it a couple of times and it, you know, it, it ballooned out of control. And so it was sort of this thing we had set aside that had not yet been incorporated. And so the goal here was in addition to kind of covering the need for black criminology, the, the role of interpersonal racial discrimination was to then link it to kind of the contextually appropriate response rationale so we can understand in a better way why people seem to, you know, you know we, people might say, you know, why do people engage in, in dire situations seem to engage in behaviors that only exacerbate their situations? And again, that's because we're looking at it from the wrong lens because their goal is to survive and they're making the best of a bad situation. They're not trying to, you know, be healthy or do good in school. That becomes, you know, something that is outside of a concern when survival is key. And so this really was trying to lay the groundwork for both why we adapt the way we do that can seem maladaptive, but actually isn't. And then link that to this kind of largely vague discussion of, you know, maladaptive, I, I say that in quotes because I am arguing it's adaptive, but the so-called maladaptive cultures that are observed or commented on in, in impoverished, disadvantaged areas. So this was trying to say, you know, this, these cultural approaches are maybe accurate in some of the things they observe, but they're missing the reason why it isn't necessarily maladaptive. And then it's also to highlight the adaptive cultural toolkits like racial socialization that seem to be hugely advantageous and are often overlooked. So that is basically what I try to do within the space. And then at the end kind of highlight what this means. And in part, it means I think we need to draw more on the strengths of, of stress-adapted people of others have, have talked about and not just look at these deficit approach, which we can, we can talk about if, if interested. One thing that I did appreciate from this chapter, talking about the adaptiveness, is you sort of touch on the Darwinian definition of survival of the fittest. Because actually going back to my biology class, that is another thing that I do remember. And it, <laughs> and after I learned what exactly Darwin meant by that, it became a huge pet peeve of mine because people seem to never use it properly. Because it's not talking about the one with the best physical characteristics, right? He's not talking about like the fastest animal or the strongest animal he's talking about the one with certain key characteristics in a certain context is more likely to survive right and and so if you're in a rough neighborhood having like the manners or the characteristics that you would find in a more affluent neighborhood will would probably be detrimental to your quote unquote survival and so i i think it kind of spoke to me when you, when yeah. you talked about that in this chapter. 
and 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 it you know really and the way that our schools too are set up to foster those traits and and build on the trait the traits that are are beneficial in you know safe supportive calm environments and I think that there's lessons to be learned from there's some really excellent work in psychology that's that's looking at this by Bruce Ellis and and several others it's really highlighting the fact that our schools are rather artificial and not necessarily the best preparation for the jobs that we do because a lot of jobs are high stress require you know attention shifting like I am the worst attention shifter so luckily I've got a job where I can largely single task but if I was trying to manage a lot of different people under stress I think there's a safe chance to say that I would fail miserably but but some people you know I mean those those types of things aren't really fostered in school and some people especially from you know disadvantaged neighborhoods seem to do better at attention shifting and detections of both threats and opportunities. And those aren't really honed, despite the fact they are relevant for a number of things that are very beneficial for society and the individual. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) So another question, and this question that I had was, so you mentioned in the chapter, and I've heard you say this in person before, that SST is a general theory. And then in, the, in this chapter, you also say that it's a racialized theory. And so it sort of got me thinking, and maybe it's, it's just the way that I conceptualize a general theory, but can a racialized theory be a general theory? And what would be the distinction between those two things? That's a great question. So in my mind, given sort of what we discussed earlier, a general theory would need to be racialized to explain observed disparities in both the distribution of risk factors and unique race-specific risk factors, which which shape patterns of, of crime and criminalization and criminal justice system responses. So not only do I think a general theory should, it must be racialized to account for these disparities that we we see. So even, I mean, I think at times, Garvison and Hershey do things that might slightly be considered racialized in terms of, you know, they do point to some differences for, you know, in the fact that African Americans, which they don't really spell out is due to the legacy of slavery and other, you know, structural oppression, but that they're in more disadvantaged situations, and therefore, the ability to kind of, you know, monitor, correct, and punish misbehavior is more difficult. And so I think in, in sense that could be could be racialized in a very weak sense. But to me, that's what it really means in the same way that I think that a theory must also be account for differences in sex or gender and, and the way that that shapes criminal responses and, and risk factors, which, again, doesn't mean the reason it's not race specific is because it, we're not positing qualitative differences in, in necessarily these responsive, but quantitative differences in degree. I mean, some are qualitatively different, like racial discrimination is something that racial minorities experience, but, but not white people. But the responses themselves are, are similar in form. And I think that we can still, Jim Oliver and some other, you know, others have argued that we need race specific theories, which could account for, you know, the unique way that African-Americans view the legal system, you know, as unfair, and and, and in many cases, very rightly so, and their treatment and disadvantage. And I think that we could still incorporate that while still maintaining the fact that for most people, these are the general mechanisms through which crime occurs. And so I think that there's room to pull in that without, you know, without then trying to have, you know, a specific theory for each race or ethnic group, which would 
seem to certainly become unwieldy. And, 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 and I think in the end, we would see that it would be very, very much overlapping. Yeah, that makes sense. So shifting back to SST and the schemas, you touched on what, ex- what exactly a schema is. And, you know, it's that we internalize these, these things that we experience sort of these life experiences. And my question of, about the schemas, is, I think it's more about how fluid schemas are so, for example, say you know, I'm coming from an old disadvantaged neighborhood. I've developed my schemas there for, say, 20 some years. But then at some point, I move out of that neighborhood and I manage to move into a much nicer neighborhood. How do my schemas change? Would it be just through like observation? Would it be sort of trial by fire? And is it like how slow is the process of the schema shifting if they do shift? Yeah, that's a, that's a super question. And I think that's, that's one of the things I'm really interested in understanding more of now, you know, focusing on both adolescence as a unique time like childhood where we're open to more change and more changeable. And thus it, it, it could be potentially a really great time for interventions, but also thinking about, you know, how quickly we change and can change in the life course. And I think it, it, it's a, I think this is one that's dependent on both to what extent have these individuals been exposed to extremely harsh environments. You know, I mean, cause these, it's, these are cumulative lessons that begin to stack up. And so let's say, you know, you then get into a, a supportive environment and people are, you could, you think, Hey, uh, that person actually reciprocated. They kept their word, you know, they, they didn't hurt me. And so, but I, what I don't think, I think it's a slow kind of like a replacing these old lessons with new ones. So you know, I think it's if we think that there's going to be some magical quick change, then we're we're being unrealistic. And I think that's that's in my view the problem with some of the interventions that that we see. That the idea that a month or a year is going to kind of undo and drastically change 20 years of exposure to harsh, unpredictable, dangerous environments is just not realistic. And so I think it requires slow change and, and persistence. And it also varies between individuals. I think we, this is one area which I'm not sure that it's useful for policy, but it is useful to help understand that some individuals are more quick to change in response to their environments. And it's called differential susceptibility or biological susceptibility to the environment. That some people change more quickly. And so that means if they're put into a bad environment, they'll adapt more quickly to that. But if they're also put in a good environment, they'll adapt more quickly to that. And so I think it depends on a host host of individual differences that are both biological and social. But in the end, I do think that people can change. I think there's evidence that even in old age, we can make significant changes and that the idea that people are beyond, you know, saving or beyond change or that, that in almost all cases, that's not realistic. The question then becomes, do we have the will to change people? Or are we willing to do what it needs to, not whether they can be, can be reformed? And, and again, reformed, again, again, applies not that they're dysfunction or ill and need to be fixed, but that we want people to have an environment so they can live in a way that ma- you know, maximizes their health, wealth, and happiness. Yeah, I guess it just reminds me of like, all habits die hard, right? Yes, and, and I think, you know, it relates too to, to some of the things that things take a while and there'll be, I think you said trial by fire or, you know, starts and stops. I mean, personally, 
I found it very difficult to quit smoking and it took me like five tries and, you know, I would fail and try again, fail and try again. And then finally it stuck. And, you know, it was, it, it, I think, you know, even, and, and now imagine it's something that's ingrained for your whole life and, and for your survival and really try to, to learn to trust people that have never been trust, you know, earn your trust. And so I think that we will always err on the side of protecting ourselves. And that's something that we have to remember, whether when we work with offenders or we work with people that are disadvantaged or, or, or harmed, that we, re- we have to remember that they're, they should err on the side of protecting themselves and that we've evolved to do that. Yeah. And I think that sort of really hit home for me. It just, it just started reminding me of when I was growing up and you know, my neighborhood and sort of the way we did things. And then eventually I, I got to college and you don't do things the same way in college that you do in South Central Los Angeles. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Shocking, right? Uh, you have no idea. Apparently people in college don't take kindly to you scowling at them. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and that's not a way to get status? What? Yeah. No, right? So it, it's just sort of reminding Sometimes I would, without thinking about it, sort of revert back to some of my old behaviors as an, as an adolescent and then not, and it's not sitting well with some of my college friends. And, you know, so that's sort of, was kind of like my trial by fire, right? Right. And it was probably when you were more under threat or, you know, in a situation that you needed to protect yourself or you felt that way. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think that's what it was. So yeah, I would revert to back, back to some of those old, back to my old schemas, if you will. <laughs> and then just to add, which and then I, I do talk too much, but I mean, I think almost every theory except I mean, certainly our theory, learning theory, really just suggests that, you know, the worst thing we can do if we want to reduce crime is, is stick a bunch of people in a prison that's harsh, harming, unsafe, unpredictable, and isolated. I mean, that's literally, we could like, let's do the worst thing. That's it. So, I mean, to try to change their schemas or, or help them be more trusting, we're doing exactly the wrong thing. And, and the result is predictable that they come out more harmed than they were when they went in. Yeah, your comment about intervention programs kind of rang true to me because we're currently doing kind of a program evaluation in the Oregon prison system for a step-down program coming out of solitary. And one of our questions is, do you think your time in this program is enough to change your future? And it's about a three-month program and a lot of them are like, no, like right. three months. <laughs> like I've been doing this my whole life. Like, right. Yeah. And then it becomes, you know, you don't, you know, three months is better than zero, but it's right. sort of like, again, let's think about, you know, how costly is it to incarcerate? I mean, not only the loss of lives and the pain, but how costly is it to incarcerate? It's like we could do things if we were a little bit more, if we weren't so short-sighted ourselves in our policies. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right, so our next question is kind of more current events. So in your, in the chapter's implication section, you mentioned that the framework you are advocating for in the chapter has implications for policy and practice regarding reducing harm and suffering among black communities and then also the wider society. So you do discuss it a bit in the chapter, but thinking about current events or structural racism in the U.S., 
Could you describe what some of the real world implications for the framework in the chapter could be? Yeah, so that's a great question and and probably one that I can even think more more deeply about. And so yeah. the, you know the, the implications at the end were really so we, we have this racist structure which is harming and people adapt to it in ways that are that you know foster their survival, but not necessarily their their health, their wealth, or, or social well being. And so then the implications would be that we reduce the harm. So we address disadvantage, we address harmful you know, environments, unsafe environments, uncertainty that are dis and the you know, racism itself, you know, in terms of the racialized distribution, unequal distribution of resources and, and safety and certainty, as well as interpersonal racial discrimination itself. And so it's like, okay, so let's go do it. And then it's like, but no, but practically, what are you saying? And I think that's where, you know, we have to, to, to think about practically what are we, what are we trying to do? And I think that, you know, what we've seen recently are, you know, horrific examples of, of police murder and violence against, you know, black men and, and women that not only are, you know, horrific themselves, but as they're now being broadcast widely, it, you know, it, it's another way of learning that you're not safe and that people can't be trusted and this could be you and, it, you know, so it's now we can learn vicariously from other people's experience lessons about lack of safety and uncertainty. And so I'm not, I think we, to me, the number one thing is, is address just the wide disadvantage in our society, that the difference between the lucky people and unlucky people should not be so big. And what that means practically is a reformulation of our, our economic system that addresses, you know, the, the, the it addresses class inequalities more broadly, but does so in a way that's also sensitive to the major legacy of slavery and racial discrimination. Jim Crow, recognizing that, that African-Americans, as they have been impacted by this, will be, as they should be, disproportionately advantaged by programs that seek to lift people up. Like, you know, everyone should have a living wage. No one should live in fear, their environment. And what that means is we just squash people. I mean, $10 million, in my opinion, is, is plenty for anyone to earn in, in one year. Anything above that should be totally taxed away. And so we've got, the, we've got the ability and the resources so we don't have people suffering the way they do. And the question is, will, will we do it? And, and I think for us as criminologists, and or for me, I think more attention, we can get wrapped up, and I know I do, in theory testing and is self-control stable and more more time and effort really needs to be paid to what does this mean and how can we make lives better? Because at some point we've really got to start making a difference in crime. And we, and we, crime rates have gone down, but there's still extraordinary suffering. And too often the work that we do is unmoored from, from practical implications and, you know, theory testing because we can. And I'm not saying that's not important. I just think that, thinking about implications, we need to engage in more like the work you're doing in the, the step down from Oregon sounds fantastic, that we need to really think about ways to lift people up and what policies work and how long do they need to be and address it in a, in a racially sensitive manner, including, I mean, I think just even steps like removing these offensive Confederate statues around, like the fact that, you know, in the Decatur Georgia, which is near here, just pulled down the Confederate statue in the middle of the city. It was like, how is that still up? That's not acceptable. You know, just as a tribute to this racist past and present, 
we need to drastically change these things. And I think part of that too is the police, and, and I will say, I, I, I think being a police officer is probably extraordinarily difficult. I mean, we're, we ask them to do very many things, which they are, and they're not well-trained, and they're asked to do too much. That said, that does not excuse the racist violence or you know, the horrible racist violence that we're seeing. And so, you know, reformulating, you know, how to make police less kind of antagonistic and antagonistic is, you know, obviously a very light way of putting it. And, you know, in some cases, very racist and have, they have records of abusive people, especially, you know, black and Latinx people. And so I think that, you know, trying to reformulate things to be more supportive and predictable than harsh and punishing is the way to affect positive change. And it can be done at every level, whether, whether it's teachers, whether it's our neighborhoods, whether it's our police. I mean, I, I really think that they're in, in LA that they're doing, you know, I, I have concerns about the defund police in the terms of abolish it, which I don't think most people mean, but the idea of doing it differently that, you know, if you've got a, someone that's, you know, in a conflict with their spouse, are armed police necessarily the best people to deal with this? Probably not. I mean, I think what we need are co- people engaged in conflict management and de-escalation. And, you know, when you have a person that's mentally ill or, you know, struggling in a life crisis, I'm, you know, police aren't well trained to deal with that. We have social workers, we have, you know, counselors that could be there and deal with that. So I think that reformulating things to try to support our fellow citizens will only be to the benefit of all of us. And the long-term benefits will be cost-effective, as a lot of research shows. The, the short-term costs will be high, but we're hopefully in this for the long haul. So we should be a little bit less myopic. Mm-hmm. So I guess my implications are, you know, I mean, there, there are a lot of somewhat platitudes, you know, let's eradicate the, the racist structure, which mm-hmm. we all want to do. The question is how. And I think that that's what we could all do better grappling with. And I certainly just want to kind of listen more because policy is not yet where I'm, I'm really well, I'm not really well versed in policy. And it's something that I'm hoping to, to get a little bit better at. What about you guys? Do you have thoughts on, on what, how, what you would think from these implications? It's such a big question. And um, <laughs> yeah. I think my thoughts are really similar to where you were going, Callie. Just, you know, there's so many things, like you said, that sound really great, but then how do you actually do them? And yeah, I think really just starting small and growing it from there. I agree with you and Jose and I were just talking with another guest on the podcast about hashtag defund the police and how a lot of times it is kind of referenced in like as the same thing as abolish the police. And we don't think that that's necessarily the right strategy to go either, but instead to divert funds to these other groups of people who need to be or who are trained to deal with the kind of kinds of situations that right now police are supposed to be dealing with. And I even think that, you know, and it, we're, we're, we've now gotten to this point where who right now would want to join the police, right? I mean, it, it's like police are, you know, and, and it's not that, that the videos that we've seen justifiably lead to many people thinking all police are horrible, which mm-hmm. you know, not all are. I mean, the, the police culture seems to be not so, it seems to be pro- very problematic. It needs to be addressed, but it's almost as if we need to, you know, not, we need to change from thinking of the police and ch- by changing the police, by making them not a culture of control, but a culture of support. Like we're not scared of the fire department when we call them, right? right. We, we, they come to help us put out a fire. And 
police are obviously tasked with a more difficult job, but if we can somehow get it where they're here to help us instead of punish us, then you know, whether that is pull social workers in as police officers, right? They're officers who have no gun training, can't carry guns, but they're police. And so we're just thinking of different ways to do things in a supportive way because you know, we, we have to have you know, a government group that can have a monopoly on force because some people will engage in it. But the current, the current culture is a culture of bullying and abuse among many that disproportionately affects Blacks and other racial minorities, but especially, especially Blacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in Los Angeles, the LA Unified School District, which I've made no secrets, I absolutely deplore LAUSD. They have their own... So you love it. So you love it. Yeah, yeah basically. But they have their own police force. And I just learned recently that, that LAUSD police have these anti-mine tanks and grenade launchers. And they're like, we'll give back the grenade launchers, but we're keeping the tanks. Oh and I'm like, like what you, do you need you're the for? police department for a school district. You don't need That's a tank. Crazy. That's crazy. Uh, and then also when you think about Mayor Garcetti pulled back anywhere from 100 to $150 million from LAPD, which is a lot of money. But then you compare it to LAPD's budget of over $3 billion. Right. And yeah, and you know, I've also made no secrets that I got into research and doing what I do and and Jen's in a similar boat because we wanted to change something at this point. I don't know what that something is exactly, but I want to change something like, but now talking to you and reading your paper, I, I think I have to maybe do a little more soul searching because like, yeah, now I don't actually know what it is that I want to change exactly. Well, welcome uh, to, I, mean, I, I think that like, I think that's sort of an unspoken thing that I met, or I, maybe I just speak for myself, but it's sort of, I think that's why a lot of us go into it. And then we do get, you know, we get wrapped up in a career and you've got to publish and you're trying to also make change. And the more you learn, the more it's like, how do we change things? The problem is so big. And I think some of it, you know, it becomes like, like even, I think, I think as Jen, Jen was just saying that, you know, thinking about small change, which can be you know a model for larger change or it's just helping you know the what x number of people who got involved in that step down program which is in itself important change but it gets overwhelming and i think i moved from a place of you know cynicism and hopelessness i mean not in life in general but like in our ability to affect positive change to you know hopefulness like right now as dire as things are we really have the opportunity to people are willing to change things and the question is, I think, like, are we going to bring evidence to bear on this and make sustainable change that, you know, promotes, you know, flourishing? And that's, you know, not, not small change, not like hollow change, but real change. And so I sure hope we do. Thank yeah, you. we do too. And so I guess we can segue into the transparency questions that we have. And well, Okay, disclaimer, we both follow Kelly on Twitter, and mm-hmm. we really just pull these from Kelly's Twitter. Because uh, <laughs> they're do, interesting questions. Yeah, these are interesting oh, questions. And I think the discussions that you sort of bring up in people 
with these questions are interesting and important to talk about, I think. And so one of them is regarding the transparency in the review process of manuscripts. And so you put up a poll on Twitter regarding whether review should be public. And just under half of the people who responded agreed that they should be made public. Can you talk a little bit about why you think they, they should be? Yeah, first of all, I was very surprised to see quite so many people agree that it should be public. And I mean, I was pleased. And I guess the reason I, I should be, and this relates a bit to, to policy, is sort of, you know, to create useful knowledge, it really needs to be robust and reproducible. But to reproduce it, we need to have information about it and know about, you know, what was considered, what wasn't considered. And the reviews are a key part of this. So, you know, when we look at a paper and think, okay, what about this limitation? Oh, did they think of this? Well, many of these things were covered in the review process, where the reviewers say, look at this, did you examine this? And then authors then respond and say, yes, here's why I did do this. No, here's why I didn't. But none of us get that information. So we really don't know what all, you know, all of this back work that was done on the paper, we really don't get. A lot of it's really informative and useful. And I know that in part because when I'm going through, when I was in my statistical genetics course last fall, one of the papers that we were discussing in class was in one of the journals that do show their views. As someone who was especially not an expertise yet or ever in the area, I mean, it helped me. So I had questions and some of them, you know, the reviewers raised, the authors responded to the question and some they were saying, you know, this isn't a question, you know, this is unanswered. And, you know, it was a concern we have. And so at least I knew that they were aware of it and addressed it versus not. So I think there are three really reasons why I think that we should move towards open review. And one is it's a teaching tool both for people in how to evaluate a paper and in how to do a review. So you know, what, when, an, when an expert goes through a paper, what are, they, what are they evaluating? And second, I think it is some reviews are really insightful and have good ideas and also like make suggestions for good future research. And that too is no reason to not be shared with the public or specifically other scholars. And three, I think that reviews are disincentivized. Right now, you do it, I mean, it is expected that you do reviews and because people do reviews for you, but we all are, none of us almost have extra time. And so we're forcing reviews in a schedule that barely fits anyway. And thus taking the time to do a thorough review is something that is curiously selfless in a lot of cases. So you're not getting credit for doing it. You're, you know, a, a couple of people are seeing it. And, and yes, you can think like I'm, I'm contributing to the literature, but I, you know, rarely, but sometimes done, you know, a review to paper identified some significant flaws and then the paper was rejected. And then I've become a reviewer again on that paper when they just submitted to a different journal, not addressing any of the flaws. And, you know, I told the editor, I've reviewed this paper. Can I review again? And they said, yes. And it's sort of, well, well, maybe that would have been identified, but maybe it wouldn't have. And if we had a history of these reviews, we could at least see what's been called out and what they haven't done and not wasted kind of scientific effort and made people motivated to do a good job and get credit when they do. And I think that so some journals do make reviews public. Some it Actually, I think in every case, the reviewer is allowed to sign the review so they make it known they were the person that did the review or not. Otherwise, it's just a public piece of information. 
And that way, if you are particularly negative about the review and don't necessarily want to be attached to that review for maybe professional implications, you don't have to sign it. But I think it, in almost all cases, the costs are outweighed by the benefits, in my opinion. I think we just should move towards more transparent science because more information is almost, almost, but almost always better. Yeah, I guess on the, in a similar vein, you've also touched on reviewer names becoming public knowledge. Can you expand a little bit more on that, on that thought? Yeah, so, you know, I, I also, I mean, I think that there's a couple ways. Again, I think it's getting credit for, for work that you're doing, especially if you do a good job. And, and I've had papers that were a substantial change was made that improved the paper because of a reviewer comment. Where, I mean, they, they contributed to the, the value of the paper, but I don't know who they are and they don't get any credit for it. And so, you know, some journals list the reviewers so we know, okay, these, t- these people contributed and evaluated this paper. And in some cases, like we've seen recently a paper in, you may have not seen recently, but uh, in, the, in PNAS that was proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that reviewed the racial disparities in police shootings. And now that this has just come up again, there's been renewed attention to it. And some people are saying, you know, reviewers missed some errors. And it's sort of like, again, if if there's no accountability for review, you know, it's sort of like when you review a paper and say, this is good, you know, be willing to put your name on the paper and say, I stamp, I stamp, I think this is good. And we all make mistakes. And I think that too has to be part of a more transparent science. It's understanding people make mistakes and None of us are perfect and every one of us makes mistakes. And so mistakes shouldn't be, you know, cause for, you know, total, you know, hoopla, but let's just fix it because science only proceeds through correction of mistakes, but we cannot identify mistakes if, if we're proprietary about data, if we don't share reviews, if, if we don't allow people to reproduce things. And as a result, the credibility of our research is uncertain. And I think now, you know, in the past, it, it wasn't really feasible to kind of make science reproducible in, in the way it is now. But now we've got basically unlimited storage for data. We've got, you know, shareable codes and, and scripts. And it's really easy to do this. And, and I'm actually proposing that we assign a study reproducer to every study that is submitted to criminology journals where they actually take the data and code and reproduce the findings of the paper. And so check to make sure any errors weren't, weren't committed. And that person gets then credit on the paper as the study reproducer, and that should be considered a significant contribution to science. And it's just a different way of contributing to science, and that's important and necessary. Yeah, I think, I think that's interesting given sort of some of the controversies that the field has gone through recently with not being able to reproduce results. But then that sort of leads me to the question of just, I feel, wouldn't that sort of slow down and already slow process and then you have like your junior faculty that is under pressure to sort of publish in order to get tenure. Yes, I think it would slow it down, undoubtedly, in some ways. So I think that in other ways it could speed it up. So for example, if we now if a paper is rejected, it goes through the whole process again, starting from scratch. But if we shared reviews between journals, a review could look at the review. Uh, the next journal could say, okay, I see these reviews. We're going to give you, based on these reviews, an R&R. And then we're going to send to new reviewers based on, on these, you know, on these reviews. 
So rather than starting anew each time and getting, you know, the random selection of, of reviewers who have different views about what's important and what you should do, we could not waste that original review and just pass it on to the next journal and speed up the whole process. And with the kind of reproducing it, I do think that would also slow it down. But I think simultaneously that gives us different ways of contributing. So we're no longer contributing by kind of publications alone. We're also getting credit for our public reviews, our reproducing. So it's giving us different ways to contribute. And ultimately, I think this is couched in my view that we are publishing too many papers and that pressure to publish is, is bad for science and that we need to focus more on, you know, not necessarily quality versus quantity, but reproducibility versus a fancy, shiny, potentially not reproducible finding. And that I think there are different ways we could do that. One is that, you know, tenure cases, rather than, than looking at, you know, if someone has 15 articles or 12 or eight, that we say, pick your three best articles, and that's what we're going to evaluate you on. And that way, it's less about these numbers that are ultimately, in my opinion, not, not necessarily sustainable. And right now, we're publishing over 4,000 articles a year in criminology. I have, you know, a couple of specialty areas, and I cannot keep up with the latest advancements in each of these specialty areas because there's so many new articles. And, and what that means is we, we do take shortcuts necessarily and hopefully we get it. You know, it's, so it's like if something's in a top tier journal, I'm more likely to see it than it's in a lower tier journal. But sometimes, you know, that's not an, ad, you know, an accurate indicator of, of the quality or innovation. In fact, sometimes they're put in a lower journal because they're different and, and have a new idea. And so I think it's, it's with so many papers, we're losing our ability to kind of accumulate knowledge because if knowledge, you know, you think of knowledge accumulation like a pile of bricks and it's like, now we're just getting tons of bricks. They're just being dumped on us and we don't have time to build up and there's no way you can find the bricks relevant to what you're doing. And so we're getting partial knowledge. And so I think the idea that of slowing things down may not may, if we can shift the incentive system, be a strength, because I would say we're moving too fast. I think that's really interesting because, so we have a working group at CU, and we just had like a pro seminar topic on staying on top of the literature and how to do that as graduate students. As oh, we're oh how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a lot of suggestions as like bookmarking different journals so you can like quickly skim through the index you know, of each journal that, or each, gosh, now I'm blanking on the term, but each time new articles come out, then you can look at them there. But, you know, even still, like as grad students, we're A, learning a new topic while trying to stay on top of all of the new things that are coming out. And it's kind of overwhelming. <laughs> totally overwhelming. And we're getting more narrowly specified too. So now, you know, when people ask me about this you know, it's like, so tell me about interpersonal violence and specifically what the latest research shows. And I'm like, oops, let me tell you my broad knowledge of that that I teach in criminology. <laughs> right. But in terms of what the latest study is, I don't know what, I couldn't tell you who did the latest study. And and it, it would be difficult to kind of identify it. And and I use it to the kind of Google Scholar alert so that like, mm-hmm. but it, that quickly becomes, you know, I get every day like 50 new articles with self-control in it. So it's like, I, I can't read all 50 of those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it- I know I've had, I've found it especially daunting because I research gangs, right? And but before coming to see you, my knowledge of 
the gang literature was very limited. And of course, not, I had to then sort of get well-versed in the classics. So like Thrasher 27, Cloward and Owen. But so I have to do that. And at the same time, somehow managed to keep up with what's coming out. And that's just exhausting. Yes, yes, it is exhausting. I mean, it's exciting, you know, when new things come out. And then suddenly, all of a sudden, I re- look over and it's like, oh, my gosh, I've got 50 articles that are like, I'm excited mm-hmm. to read. And I've got time to read, too. So it just keeps getting getting larger. Yeah. All right. So you've also recently kind of pushed for including published papers, histories on like the researcher or the author's CV. And I know you have started to do this. What's your push for this policy? I think this policy is not, this would be kind of low on my totem pole mm-hmm. of list of important things. I think one of the reasons that I thought it was useful in doing is just kind of looking at both the paper history and, you know, how, you know, I think it gives us an idea, okay, so this paper, you, know, you read a paper and it seems this is a good fit for criminal justice and behavior. You know, mm-hmm. did they just send it there right away? And you're like, oh, no, so she got deaths rejected here and she sent it there. And so I think it's, it's useful, useful in that sense. And what I, I think I would like to do in the future is, you know, assuming I can stay organized, which I think I'll try, is, is maintain kind of the article that was sent. Like this one was sent and you can link to that article that was sent there. And then you can link to how it changes. And so you can see kind of the evolution of a paper across time because sometimes it's major. Sometimes people, you know, are like, you got to do this differently. And other times it's really, you don't make very, you're like, okay, they don't like it, but I feel really good about this paper and I've done these robustness tests and I think it's important. And so I'm going to see if other people agree and it changes very little. And so, you know, someone might read a, a paper that was rejected from eight journals and you think, wow, this is a really great paper. And then you read the first version of it and you're like, this is hardly changed. So it just had an unlucky or, you know, a not really great review experience and ended up very similar. So it, it really is, again, about just, I think, more information is useful. And I, I don't think that I, people need to do it. I think mm-hmm. that if they want to, they can. You know, some people said that will be terrible for untenured professors, you know, to, to show that maybe, you know, I don't know if that was because, you know, it's harder to get published maybe at the beginning or, you know, you go through ebbs and flows. But I think it also can show like, well, this person had a gap because this paper took a while to get published and it's a solid paper. So that was kind of maybe a problems that weren't their fault. And ideally it would be accompanied by the reviews of the paper. So you could kind of see what people suggest. And I also think that in the end, you know, my kind of desire to publish fewer and kind of do things a little better, which, you know, I, I obviously need to do that as well, will be facilitated by kind of just, sharing with each other what we're learning across these processes. I mean, even someone who's never applied to a journal before saying, okay, they had a similar paper, they sent here, didn't really seem like a take, but it landed here. So I've got two years to my tenure review. Do I want to shoot it to criminology and maybe not have it hit and then maybe not have it hit or do I want to go ahead and shoot? So I think just kind of making these strategic decisions with more information can be useful. Yeah, that makes sense. So some journals in like the medical and public health disciplines, they have their authors basically break down what it is that they contributed to the manuscript. Do you think that's something we should adopt? Absolutely. I think we should have adopted that yesterday. 
But yeah, I think that I think it's necessary, particularly, I think it's informative. I think it, especially in the cases are, you know, if someone does make a mistake, we can see, okay, you know, here's probably where that breakdown occurred. And I think especially for, for junior scholars and other scholars, when, you know, you're publishing a paper that you did with oversight of your you know, of your mentor who, or, you know, colleague who was very important, but you did the analyses, you wrote the paper and, and did all the other stuff that you get credit for, for that main work. So I think apportioning credit in multi-author journals, especially in multi-author papers, especially in a field that's moving towards kind of more authors and a lot of it with, you know, big shared data will be, is important because I think the current system allows the rich to get richer, especially if they have data by sharing their data and getting data and, and organizing a project is no doubt an exceptionally difficult endeavor and a time consuming one that's very important, but we should be clear that someone's contribution to a paper is ideas or data or analysis. And we can both, you know, both in terms of who do I contact if I want to do this analysis about a question, or if I wonder about what this is saying in this paragraph of the paper, who's the relevant person? Or if I'm interested in this data, who do I contact? So I just think that similar to the other, it becomes you know very difficult if you have a paper with two people, one of whom, you know, or three people, two of whom did all the work, one of whom contributed data, and you really don't have any idea who did what. It's hard to say, you know, is that person establishing independence from from that data person or are they just using their data? We don't know. So I think that's, it's really important, especially for junior scholars. And also when the rich are getting richer, understanding what their contribution is. What do you guys think? Do you like the idea? Do you think it's more kind of nitpicky or? No, I think it's great, especially for people or students like Jen and I, where, you know, we've heard the horror stories of senior faculty or advisors having the student do all the work and then the faculty member being the first author on the paper somehow. Oh, gosh, yes. Or even like where you're working with someone who's your advisor and you're the first author, but people still give all of the credit to the advisor just because they're assuming that they did all of the work. Or they say that, you know, the person, you know, hasn't established independence, yeah. which, which I'm, you know, I'm not sure that I, I think that that's a credible, you know, in general, it's a credible critique in, in many cases, but especially if we can see, well, they came up with the idea, they did the analysis, they wrote the paper and did everything else and used the data. Are we really going to suggest they're not an independent scholar? I think, you know, no. So if we knew that, it would undermine those, those sorts of attempts to question independence, which do occur probably too often than they should. Yeah. And ultimately, I mean, I think part of this was, you know, I realized what this was, how this was being done in other disciplines and mm -hmm. to beneficial effects, it seemed to me. And I mean, when I see that what, you know, I think about what criminology has done in the past 30 years, some great, but on the other hand, it's like, how much more do we really know about crime than we did in 1990 in a way that really could make society better? And, you know, I definitely think we, we know more, but I also think when compared to certainly, you know, like the Human Genome Project, which had way more funding, but it's like, they managed to get invisible things and, and do all this by working together, by being collaborative and open and sharing data immediately and working together. And it's sort of like, what could we do if we engaged in a, in a collaborative versus a competitive criminology? And, and that's what I'd really like to see. Who knows? You know, obviously, genes in many ways are easier to study, even though they're invisible to the naked eye, because of you know, the nature of the natural sciences. But on the other hand, 
who knows what we could do if we really did collaborate and share all data and you know, make a big data set and be open. And I think we can do a lot more. That sounds great. And you know, now just to pivot a little bit, another poll that you put up on Twitter was asking for, or the question was data that's, that is funded with government monies should be made available to the scholarly community within five years of data collection and or the completion of the funded research. And this is for multi-year projects where waves would be released sequentially. And almost 96% of the respondents agreed with this statement. And could you tell us more about where this idea came from and what the push for making a timeline for the availability of government-funded collected data is? Well, first of all, I, I kind of want to be like, who are those four percent? What? What they want? <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, I was, and also I was like, when you were just reading it, I was like, I didn't realize I did so many polls. But also, we've been lonely, you know, in COVID. So I'm like, I'm going to just ask people uh-huh. on Twitter. <laughs> but for this, I really think it is so much to what I was just saying about shared data, and, and, and especially in criminology, we have a number of very rich longitudinal data sets that have probably easily each one over twenty million dollars in taxpayer funded funding to get these data and yet only by luck of association and or you know happenstance are you able to get access to the data i mean and it varies some 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 people are much more you know if you said you write them and say i'd like to answer this question with with these data that they'd be willing to share it other people not so much and so we're doing a project on looking at changes in impulsivity and sensation seeking across time but in our data we unfortunately are missing that they took out the measures in wave three, which is the most interesting time period. It's like mid-adolescence when I'm really interested in what it looks like they were missing a wave. And so one of my students worked on the Denver Youth Study, which in the office next to mine, and it was a secure office, and said, oh, we've got great measures. And it's like yearly assessments, and it covers adolescence. And I was like, oh my gosh, great. And so I assumed I could you know, write a letter and, and, and use it as sort of a replication or just an additional data set and do kind of two studies in this one this one paper, but the answer was no, you can't use the data. And then I thought, well, that's got to be wrong because, you know, I have access to this secure office just like this student does. And, I, you know, I've got years of training, decades of training now on sensitive data. And it was like, nope, you know, you can, you can write a proposal and go to Ann Arbor and do the analysis there, but then you actually can't take the analysis with you or any notes out. And I was like, who's going to pay for that? You, know, you can't just leave your family and go to Ann Arbor. And, and then I realized, you know, I started looking around like for some alternative data to, to use. And it seems that this, you know, there are several very rich criminology data sets, I'm sure, sociology, psychology, that are, are just not accessible. And the rationale is, you know, protection of privacy. But then you see, you know, the ad help that is, you know, laudably shared and there's so much private information there. And so the idea that we can we can trust some people that are your friends to look at these data and not you know, reveal some information, but not other scholars. And despite the fact that some of these data, you know, we're starting collection in, in the 1980s and we can't even get access to like early waves just seems inconsistent with the norms of science as I understand them. And so I think that we've shown that strong norms are not enough that people will still not share their data and that what we need is specific rules and requirements that say that you will not get more funding 
unless you put this data publicly. Like, so with the, you know, with genomic data, you have to upload the data to DGAP and these other ones. Like, so, you know, immediately when you publish with it, you know, when you get a grant, it's shared. It's viewed as a collective resource because we're all paying for it. And, and so I guess, you know, with a five-year, I was thinking, if you have a funded project for five years that says you want to address these questions, and, you know, NIH or NIJ funds you to answer those questions, at the end of the five-year project, you have to release that data publicly. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't continue asking questions with your data. You should obviously be feel, feel free to do so. But what it doesn't mean in my view, is that you should be able to keep writing proposals with that data and then maintain, you know, not share that data for years, even decades. And then ultimately all the, I mean, what that means both is that people can make mistakes or that, you know, there's resources that are not being tapped into or just a variety of different things that it's just, if we want to really produce good science and make great strides, we can't just allow a small group of people to access exceptionally rich data. And I especially think that it's important for us to start doing within study replications whenever possible. And to do that, we have to have more data sets. Yeah. Now, are you two one of the 4% or not? (laughs) (laughs) I did not participate in the poll. Okay. I am none of the percent. As as someone that's rummaged through ICPSR only to find out that they only have the documentation available and not the actual data. I know. Uh, gosh. I, I was part of the 96% where I was like, I want, I need, I need this data because I have this question and I can't answer it without this data. Right. And yeah. there is a slightly good, so I've been working with some people. It's, the good or bad news is it depends on which, what the issue is with me is I don't give up easily. And so, you know, when I was told no, I thought, well, I do not accept. And so you know, <laughs> I've been trying to, you know, figure out other ways to do it. And one of the, you know, one of the ways that I've been working with the people at ICPR, PSR, who've been great, and obviously it's been slowed down with COVID, is, is using the possibility of our, you know, our census data centers, which there's one in Atlanta, there's one in Seattle, there's probably one in Denver, as hubs for the enclave-only data. So that people mm-hmm. who, so you don't have to find a way to get to Ann Arbor to use these sensitive data. And it doesn't, there seems to be no real rationale to require it to be at Ann Arbor only when we have these enclaves that could be utilized. And so... We're going to hopefully do a pilot project, ideally with, with you know, one of these data sets in criminology and use the Atlanta Census Hub as an enclave, as like a remote enclave. And then if it works, you know, it would be a great way to expand data access because most people would be in reasonable distance of at least one of these enclaves. And then, you know, if not, hopefully there could be some sort of NIJ funding you know, opportunity that would allow people that don't have that access to get money to go to Ann Arbor's need. I mean, that's a really cool idea. I know I've talked to some people who, you know, their project, the data is only available in Ann Arbor, like you said. And so they're having to figure out ways to go there for certain amounts of time and then come back and go back. And it's a lot of, a lot of time spent to get the data that you need for your project. So that'd be cool to have a closer area that you can go to to actually do your right analysis. yeah i mean because i think that what it ends up being is it, it, it then just becomes inaccessible and that's just not okay because yeah. we have a lot of things we need to address and right now so many questions get answered with data that's not super well suited for it but it's the best yeah. data available and right. and that's understandable but when we have data that may, maybe we could do better with we we should try to get it to those people mm-hmm. yeah all right so to kind of take a step back. I can obviously, so 
both Jose and I are grad students. So of course we're thinking through all of these questions regarding data and transparency as grad students. I definitely can see how having data released within a specific amount of time would be beneficial to everyone. However, we do have our own thoughts about these areas of transparency that you're referring to and on your Twitter page for grad students. And so we're kind of wondering what concerns could there be for methods of transparency, whether that's have making reviews public or reviewer names public for young scholars who are still learning how to do this whole process. That makes sense. Yeah, so yeah, I think it does. And so I think there's a couple of ways to think about, you know, what we would do here. One I think is I think we drop people into you know we're a very competitive academia is a competitive environment and we drop people in, you know, okay, you're now you know you're now post PhD, we're gonna drop you into this environment and good luck swimming. Or you're going to sink. Good luck. But, you know, I think part of this idea would be in more of the spirit of collaboration is try to improve the science, which means working with people who are still, you know, getting the hang of this process. And, you know, I think things like, for example, if reviewers are get credit for, you know, being a review on, on your paper, that they're potentially much more likely to be encouraging and, and give you valuable insights in ways that could improve the paper rather than, you know, kind of more critical. I don't like the way it is right now. And so I'm going to reject it. So, you know, in the more long-term thinking of, of being supportive is part of in the ways I think of the transparency, when you get credit for being supportive, I think that you're more willing to be supportive. I mean, I think that's how humans work. And in terms of sort of the openness for, you know, sharing of views, you know, I think that junior scholars and grad students, I think there's a lot of cases if they did a peer review, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't sign it. And that would just be, you still get credit for doing a review and you, you know, write it in your CV or get credit on publons or, you know, and, and recognize without necessarily identifying the specific review you did. And I mean, there are ways to get, I think obviously editorial board positions are a way of recognizing people's reviews, but you know, there's a limited number of editorial board positions. So you can't give everyone that. And then for like paper, you know, paper histories, I think that really could just be le left at the discretion of the scholar. You know, I think personally, I, I, you know, I like openness, but I also understand too that a lot of people, you know, don't necessarily want their, you know, original version of their paper shared or the, the first reviews when they were like, you know, oh, geez, I, I see that I should have done that. And they raised that really important point and I changed it. And so I think there's a balance, which, you know, there's sort of a sphere, but I think I think, too, we need to recognize that all of us get help from people, whether it's sending to colleagues like I send to colleagues before I send a paper out very frequently, where they, they say, uh, that, you know, and I'm like, oh, thank you. And just be more forgiving of the fact that we all can't be perfect all of the time. And the goal is to try to make everyone better and do better science. And so reviewers helping scholars and, you know, more senior scholars helping more junior scholars in order to make the science better. And, and I think that that's one of the negative outcomes of our kind of quantity metric obsessed a little bit culture is that it's hard not to become selfish and self-focused and the science loses and the support for the junior scholar loses. And I think the result is, is not beneficial for everyone. So 
I think there's a really reasonable concern to whether that whether we think about you know saying okay I'm not going to release this until after tenure or until after I have several publications or you know maybe never that that can kind of remain at the discretion of the reviewers you know or the the individual as we decide but I think that the current situation where we just do it things this way because we always have and therefore that's the right way to do it isn't inherently good and that's why I think that while I don't have the answers. I think we should be talking about it. And that's why I sometimes make ridiculous statements on Twitter. So Summer, you might be like, no, absolutely not. That's bonkers. But it, at least it's sort of like, well, let's, let's think about how we might improve things. You know, some of these suggestions, there's good reasons not to do them. But there's also no reason just to accept that this is the way we've always done things. So let's keep doing it this way. Yeah. Well, I like that you throw stuff out on Twitter. I like reading. I like reading the threads and everyone's ideas. Yeah, I have it's no good. monologue, so <laughs> that's what happens. Okay, then that leads us to the conclusion of the episode. Thank you so much, Callie, for oh, joining yeah, thank us. You guys. It's, it's been an yeah, absolute you, pleasure Callie. having you. Yeah, this was a blast, and you know, I have to say I'm a fan of SST and. I don't know if you remember, but I emailed you because we're trying of course to I remember. Yes. implement it into our evaluation of Denver's gang program. And we just wanted to make sure that we were doing your theory justice. Oh, yeah, it's great. And please feel free to send anything along that, that you want me to look at because I'm, I think that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. So, And is there anything that you'd like to plug, anything that is coming out in the near future that you'd like people to know about? No, if anything, if I, if I wanted to plug anything, it was, it's that I, I wish that as a discipline and as a society, we would, we would talk more, you know, and, and be willing to be wrong and be willing to, you know, suggest things that may not make, I mean, as you can see, I'll put things out there that, that may not make, you know, may not be good strategies, but for the most part, you know, people are generally kind and, and reasonable in response and say, here's why we probably shouldn't do that. But I think a lot of us right now are, are, a little bit intimidated, you know, to say, you know, potential ideas and, and, and be wrong or, and so I just, I think that I hope that as a discipline, we can debate and, and think and try to improve things. And, and sometimes that might, we might try things that might not work, but everyone is wrong sometimes. And, and we only improve through the correction of our mistakes. So that's my plug and it's not specific to anything. That's a great plug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And where can people find you? We've mentioned Twitter, so people can find you on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so my, my website is calibert.org. And, and that's where I have links to almost all of my papers under the publications. And then I do some random blog posts. And, and that's probably, and then Twitter where I chat. And that's, that's it. Awesome. Thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys. This yeah, is a lot of fun. Thank you, Callie. And stay safe. <laughs>